Almost as soon as COVID-19 closed American schools last March, researchers began to project the likely consequences for student learning. Those projections, often based on typical learning growth over summer vacation, were startling and helped spur a range of efforts to ensure that they wouldn't become a reality. Now, some three months into a new school year, the first systematic data on the actual loss in learning due to the pandemic are just starting to emerge. The results offer cause for both optimism and concern, and the best evidence to date on what it will take to put all students back on track. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Megan Kufeld. Megan is a senior research scientist at NWEA, the nation's leading nonprofit provider of interim assessments of student learning. She's also the lead author of the new report, Learning During COVID-19, Initial Findings on Students' Reading and Math Achievement and Growth. You can find an overview of the study's findings on our journal's website at educationnext.org, and I'm grateful that she's here to discuss this study with me today. Megan, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So your new study is based on data from the MAP Growth Assessment, which is NWEA's flagship assessment program. It's used by some 9,500 schools and districts nationwide. Tell us about this assessment and why it's well-suited to examine questions about learning loss amid the pandemic. So MAP Growth has a few advantages. It's a K-12 math and reading assessment that's given, um, it's widely used across the country and given multiple times a school year. So we actually have test scores from fall and winter of the 2019-20 school year, even though the spring state summative assessments uh, didn't occur in any states. Um, second, it has an interval and vertical scale which is kind of a technical psychometrics thing, but it's what allows us to look at growth both within school year as well as across school years and across grade levels, which is really important to be able to look at how students were doing last year versus this year. Um, and finally, it's a computer adaptive assessment, so and it's administered online, which means that the school students and school districts that are operating remotely this year are able to use the assessment at home or in person if they're uh, offering some sort of hybrid. So we were able to collect data in school districts uh, whether or not they were remote this year. And how many students take the assessment and how many of those students are you able to include in the analysis that you released today? Yeah, so in a normal year, we'd have about 10 million students who take the MAP growth assessments. This year, the number was a closer to about 7 million students who actually tested this fall. But because we put a few additional restrictions on our sample, we had closer to about 4.4 million students in, in grades 3 to 8 who tested both in the 2019-20 school year as well as the 2021 school year. And the first question you all look at with those data is how the performance of students taking the MAP growth assessment this fall compared to a typical school year using 2019, I guess, as the typical school year. How did it compare? Yeah, that's right. So using 2019 uh, fall as our baseline uh, and comparing students uh, who tested, let's say, in grade three this year with the students who were in grade three the previous year, uh, we found that students were performing very similarly uh, in reading, uh, but that we found that students in math uh, were about five to 10 percentile points lower this year to compared with their same grade peers in the last year, with the biggest drops occurring in grades three to five. So tell us what that change in percentile ranks means. That means that if I was a student who would have 
been expected to perform at exactly the median at the 50th percentile that I'm instead at the 45th percentile. Is that right? And how big of a difference is that? Yeah, that is correct. And, and I should say we're using NWA's map growth norms in this study. So we're actually referencing back to a pre-COVID um, distribution of students uh, rather than, you know, renorming within each year, which gives us kind of a baseline of typical um, you know, in terms of what that magnitude means, you know, I think it, it depends a little bit on the grade and where students start out. For students who are already pretty low, this is a pretty substantial drop. I would say, you know, substantively in terms of being on track, being at the 45th or the 50th percentile is probably not that different in terms of what you're ready to learn. But if you're really at the low end, this could be a pretty sizable um, impact on the students' test scores. And now the second major question that you all look at in the study is closely related to the first, and that's how the growth rate in student learning changed after schools closed physically in March 2020. How did you conduct that analysis and what did you find there? Yeah, so for the growth analysis, we actually did this two different ways using a longitudinal sample of students, so students who did have observed test scores in uh, fall in winter of the previous school year, as well as the fall of this school year. And the first thing we did was look at the raw growth. So the change score between winter 2020 and fall 2020. So that's students who tested like January, February, right before the pandemic started, and then tested again in the fall. And we found that the majority of students were showing at least some gains in both math and reading since the COVID-19 pandemic began. But those gains were smaller on average in math than what we would see in a typical school year, which we used uh, from winter 2019 to fall 2019 as the baseline. So the positive news is some stu most students were making some growth, but growth lower than normal. And then we also looked at growth in terms of relative ranking change. So using the, the NWA national norms, we were binning students in, by their percentile rank into quintiles. So students who were in the first to the 20th percentile rank were in the lowest quintile, the 21st to the 40th and the second lowest, and then looked at how those students moved from the winter to the fall in terms of the percentile rank, whether they stayed in kind of the same bin, if they moved downwards or if they moved upwards. Uh, and we found that about approximately one third of students moved down a quintile or more in math this year which is about twice the rate we would see in a typical year of students sliding in the distribution. Uh, so confirming what we had seen in, in the cross-sectional results, which is to say math seems to be more affected and more students are falling behind relative to a typical year. So you've mentioned those differences between math and reading a couple of times now, and we'll come back to that later. But I'm curious about whether there were other patterns in the data. For example, did the results vary by grade level or among different subgroups of schools or students? Yeah, so what we saw is that uh, elementary schools, so students in grades three to five, seem to be more affected than what we see in middle school in terms of the test scores. Though, you know, we've also seen from other studies that have been coming out about failure rates in middle school and high school. So I do want to caution that, you know, just because the test scores maybe aren't seeing as big of an impact in elementary, in middle versus elementary, that's not to say there aren't other kind of red flags about, you know, student performance this year. Um, and the other thing we did do is we broke down our results uh, by race, ethnicity, as well as by school poverty level. And, and that's because we don't actually have an individual uh, free and reduced price lunch or an individual SES measure for the students. So we use school poverty as kind of our best proxy. Uh, and what we saw was that math students kind of across the board, across these different groups were showing losses and there didn't seem to be a huge amount of disparity. But in reading, uh, 
you know, on average students were performing similarly, but for black and Hispanic students in late elementary school, we were seeing some drops on average. But as I think we'll probably talk about later, there's some big cautions around the overall analyses as well as the subgroup analyses in particular uh, due to the missing data. So we definitely worry we could be underestimating um, some of the inequalities that may have been happening during this time due to the fact that we are missing a higher percentage of minority students in the sample this year. So let's turn to some of those potential concerns now. This is clearly the largest and most comprehensive analysis to date of actual rather than projected learning loss, but I think you agree and you just admitted that its findings should be treated as a little bit preliminary, that there are various reasons it may not capture the full impact of the pandemic on all American students. First, one way that could be the case, you obviously have data only on districts who use NWEA assessments. That's a very large sample, but not necessarily representative of all US students. How concerned are you that the picture you're providing therefore may not generalize to the nation as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a totally valid concern. I mean, map growth is an optional assessment, so districts opt into map growth. Um, and as you mentioned, it's large, but not nation nationally representatives. Uh, so in our sample currently, we have approximately one in 10 public schools that are serving uh, students in grades three to eight. But we also see that the schools that we have in the sample this year are serving on average a higher percentage of white students and a lower percentage of free and reduced price lunch eligible students than the national population of public schools. And as well, because of, you know, kind of the discrepancies that we see in who's opening in person and remotely and in person schools seem to, you know, uh, perhaps be more likely to be testing this year. Uh, the sample also tilts a little bit more rural this year than in a normal year of the map growth assessments. We have a smaller percentage of our larger urban districts testing with us this fall. So I would say it, you know, it, it's probably the most comprehensive sample we have, but definitely not fully representative of students in the US. So first issue is which schools use the map growth assessment and which schools are using it this year. A second issue though is which students are participating in the map growth assessment even within those schools, they wouldn't participate if they've withdrawn from public schools altogether, or if just for some other reason, they didn't take the test. They're not gonna show up in your analysis. And so I noticed that you warn readers in the report that the lack of data on our most vulnerable students warrants caution. What do you mean by that? And can you give us a sense of how significant a problem it is? Yeah, so this was our kind of biggest concern with uh, these findings is that we saw that within schools that consistently tested between fall of 2019 and fall of 2020, so students would have had the opportunity to test this year, uh, about 25% of students uh, who had tested in fall of 2019 are not in our sample in 2020. So one in four students, and that's up from an attrition rate of about 15% in the prior year. So it's it's considerably larger, but it's not like it's going from 0% of students who didn't show up in the next year to 25. Um, and so that's significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, I, I would say first, we're likely underestimating the impacts on learning because what we found when we looked into who was missing was that the more vulnerable students are missing at higher rates this year. So students who are already low achieving, students who are in schools that had a higher percentage of students in poverty and minority students were less likely to show up this year. 
And to kind of understand how, how much this could affect our results, we did do a bounding exercise uh, for our, our main findings, the ones that we're looking at students this year versus last year, uh, and made a couple different assumptions about what would be going on with the missing students, so kind of most optimistically saying they would stay at their same percentile from last fall, kind of most dramatically assuming that they showed like a larger drop than what we saw within our sample that we did observe. And we found that the estimates definitely moved a little bit more negative, but they they kind of went from what we said five to ten percent to being more like eight to thirteen percent uh, percentile points drop in math, and mo moving from reading to being like null to a couple percentile point drop. So you know it it gave us a little bit more confidence that you know the whole story is probably not going to change within this these kids who are missing in the consistent schools, but we you know we are likely being overly optimistic based on the findings. Um, and I would say the other big piece of this missingness is not just how it impacts these estimates, it's this question of who are these kids who are missing and you know how do we reach them? And we can't really tell from our data whether or not they're, you know, all the things you listed, whether they've unenrolled, whether their parents are just opting out because they can't do another, you know, another assessment this year, or if uh, if they're disengaged and the school districts haven't been able to reach these kids. So this is information the schools would likely have. We don't have it to be able to kind of follow up with these kids, but to us, this is this is a really big concern and you know a, a reason to really pay attention to the missingness and the absenteeism problem that we're seeing in a lot of school districts. So the fact that the missing students aren't numerous enough to change the overall story doesn't mean that we shouldn't be very concerned about what's going on with their progress in particular. Exactly. Yeah. The third issue is that if I understand it correctly, a sizable share of the students in your study took the MAP growth assessments from their home, which is a flexibility that your assessment affords, but is not typically the case. And I could imagine that inflating student scores if, for example, parents were assisting students with their work in ways that a teacher wouldn't do in a school setting. Do you have a sense as to whether that should be a concern? Yeah, so this is something we looked into um, within our data because we, we definitely heard anecdotally from school districts that this was happening and that, you know, they were trying to encourage parents to not help, but some parents kind of inadvertently or on purpose couldn't help themselves, but to, you know, intervene in the assessments. And one of the big challenges we found was actually uh, identifying where school, where students were testing. Um, unfortunately, we don't have an indicator of that at the student level currently. So we were using school district reopening plans, but that, you know, is a bit more, uh, ch you know, changing and flexible than we had initially thought this fall. Um, so we conducted a comparability study with a subset of districts that we had, you know, higher confidence whether we could, they were fully remote or fully in person. Um, and we looked at things like the reliability of the test, the degree to which students were engaged, how long the test was taking, and whether achievement patterns differed between students and in person and remote settings. Um, and what we found was that in three to eight, there seemed to be pretty good evidence that, you know, on average students were performing pretty similarly in remote and in-person settings, but that the K to two range was where we were seeing some pretty sizable jumps in performance for the students who tested remotely compared to the students who tested in person. So we decided to exclude the K to two data from our main paper because we had less confidence that those students we were actually seeing student performance rather than some other you know, factor of the environment. 
Um, and the, we didn't actually present this in the paper, but the quintile analyses that we, we used to look at the sliders, we could also identify kind of with those analyses, some unusual gains like students jumping two or more quintiles. So moving from the 21st to the 40th to the 81st to the 99th percentile. Um, and we found that approximately 2% of students in math and 4% of students in reading made that jump of two or more quintiles, which, you know, isn't nothing, but it's actually the same rate we saw in 2019. So during a non-pandemic time when students were almost all, if not all, testing in person. So it's not to say that there are no students who have been assisted this year, but we don't think it's really changing our findings for grades three to eight. So let's go back to the findings of the main study. And perhaps the most striking result is that students are faring so much better in reading than they are in math. That finding wouldn't seem likely to be driven by who is in the sample because you're comparing the same students, all of whom are participating. And that same pattern I noticed was evident in a similar report put out recently by Renaissance Learning, another interim assessment provider with data on a large sample of schools. Does that mean that schools just don't matter all that much for students' progress in reading? Yeah, so we see this actually in other research too, as well as, you know, the summer learning loss research and absenteeism research that when students are out of school, it seems to be math that suffers more than reading. Um, and to me, the takeaway from these findings isn't that, re you know, schools don't matter for reading progress. It's more that parents may be more able to step in and fill in some of the gaps in terms of helping with reading than with math. I certainly think reading is something that, you know, students do gain a lot in school from, but it seems like when some of the supports are taken away, kids are more likely to continue reading than they are to continue doing math worksheets at home. And a second clear takeaway from the study is that projections of learning loss, including NWA's own projections, were too pessimistic. That's most clearly the case in reading, as we discussed just now, but it's also true in math. So do you see this as ultimately a good news story? So most of the projections, including our own, were based on the assumptions that students weren't receiving any instruction in the spring. So in other words, the school closures were operating like other out-of-school time periods, like summer break. Um, and that was because we had no really good model for predicting how effective this pivot to remote instruction and you know the rollout of the technology and all of that things would be. So I would say that I'm cautiously optimistic by the, the you know the results that we're seeing so far that students are doing significantly better than our projections of COVID-related learning loss. But you know the big caveat we keep mentioning is those missing students. And so if a student is missing from our data because they have no reliable internet at home and they haven't received any schooling since March, I have a feeling those out-of-school projections act may actually line up pretty well with the outcomes for those students. So I would say, um, I'm not sure it's a, it's, a, it's a good news story with a big asterisk that uh, for the students we're able to observe, students are doing better than our projections, uh, but we fear that there are a lot of students out there that the projections may actually be reflecting the, this continued out-of-school time period. And perhaps following up on that point, what do you want listeners to take away from your research at this stage? What do you see as its implications for policy in real time? For us, I mean, I think one of the biggest takeaways is the, the drops in the math and the importance of kind of equitable access to high quality math uh, in teaching and learning. 
Um, and so for me, that, that really means that we need to help focus on how we can do that and how we can provide supports to parents so that, you know, if remote learning isn't working as well, that they can help kids, um, you know, at home as well with math in addition to reading. Um, the missing data to me also really, it highlights the importance of kind of how school enrollments have been impacted this year. And since we know a lot of funding formulas are tied to, you know, how many people are in the school, how many students are enrolled, uh, we, we really need to help, or we, I would encourage policymakers to think about how those funding formulas are going to affect schools and potentially pausing the use of the enrollment this year to make decisions around funding. Since school districts who have students who may have unenrolled this year, those students may be back next year. Um, and so I think that that's, that's also a really important consideration. Um, and the finally, I would just say we need to really encourage transparent data reporting so that we can target resources to school districts in need. And keep in mind that school schools and school districts may not have tested the most vulnerable students this year. So if we are making those decisions, we need to be clear on who is testing and who's not. And also think about other measures beyond just assessments and things like students' opportunity to learn and social emotional well-being when making these decisions. My guest today has been Megan Kufeld, Senior Research Scientist at NWEA and lead author of the new study, Learning During COVID-19. You can find an overview of her findings and a link to the full study on our website at educationnext.org. Megan, thanks for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.